Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. When you find it, say Amen. As we read through this, I want you to, to truly listen to this story because it indeed is one of the most encouraging stories in, in all Scripture, a story that was given to us by Jesus. And it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, passage that teaches us about salvation. And so I want you to follow along with me in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, There was a wise man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, as we look into your word this morning, help us to understand its truth, and help us, help us Lord, to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that we just read this morning is one that's given hope uh, to a lot of people ever since the day that it flowed from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given hope to prodigals, those who have left what they know is right, those who have went out into the world and squandered everything they've had. They, they read this story and they're able to say, you know what, maybe the Lord will receive me. 
It's given hope to uh, preachers who earnestly watch the multitudes, hoping that one of those prodigals one day will come home. It's given hope to parents. Parents who read this, they can identify with it, and they can say, you know what, uh, I have a prodigal in my family. I have a daughter. I have a son that's left everything that they know is right, and they've squandered their life. And, and this story gives them hope that perhaps their prodigal one day will return as well. Now, now the occasion for the, for the preaching of this parable is the murmuring of some religious leaders. It's interesting that this great story is actually inspired by insult. When you look back at verse 2 of chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes are upset over the relationship that Jesus has with sinners. They said, well, He receives sinners, which means that He treated these sinners with compassion. They said that, that, that He is, is relaxing with these sinners. In other words, He's eating with them. He's having conversation with them. And it says that he's even rejoicing with them, but he was rejoicing with them when they repented. Now the main point of this parable is to show the attitude of the Father toward the lost. But then there's also a warning in this parable. And the warning is to not be like either of these two sons. Don't be like the unrighteous son, like the prodigal. Don't go out and do what you know is wrong. But also, don't be like that self-righteous older brother. The one who did not want his own brother to be forgiven. So here we see the attitude of the Father is a love for the righteous and the self-righteous and a desire to see both of these people forgiven and a part of one family rejoicing in the salvation of our great God. And so this morning what I want to do as we preach this is, is to show you the heart of the Father above everything toward lost people. Now let's begin. Let's look first of all in these verses we see a leaving. We see the rebellion in verses 12 and 13. I wish you to look at how this younger son speaks to the father. He says in that verse, he says, um, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now you can sense the disrespect when you see that. He says, Give me. Look at what he, he demands. He demands the share of the property that's coming to him. Now in Jewish culture, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 17 says that the younger son got one third of the inheritance, but it wasn't supposed to be until the father died. Once the father died, then the younger son, according to the Old Testament law, would receive one third of the inheritance. But here's the problem. This young man wanted it now. He didn't want to wait. He wanted it right now. What did the younger son mean? Well, he was essentially saying this. He was saying, I want your benefits, but not you. Father, I want your benefits, but not you. You know, you know what he was really saying? He was really saying this, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I'd get my inheritance. Which is one of the most disrespectful things that anyone could ever say to any other person, much less say to their own father. I don't know if you've had teenagers before, but if you've had teenagers, they've probably said something like this. I can't wait to grow up. 
I can't wait to grow up so I can move out. When I move out, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's, it's, it's sad that oftentimes teenagers don't realize that their brain's not fully formed. They really can't understand this. And I'm not being funny there. It's truly not fully formed yet. And they begin to say things that one day they'll look back and, and they'll certainly regret. This young man at this point in his life, I don't know how old he was, but he didn't care about his father. He didn't care about his family. All he wanted was his father's money and he wanted to be as far away from his father as possible. This is absolute rebellion meant to hurt the father. That's what he's doing here. This young man cares about no one but himself. It's very clear in the story. And then we see the rejoicing of this man. We see that in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here was a man who had plenty of money. The father gave him his inheritance. The son liquidated that inheritance. That means that he, 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 made, he sold all of the possessions that he had, and he turned it into cash. And he took that cash and he moved to a faraway place and he used his money to satisfy carnal pleasures. The text says that he wasted his life with reckless living. In other words, he partied all day and he slept. I partied all night and he slept all day. Look at verse 30. When you look at verse 30, word had even traveled all the way back to his brother that he had been wasting all of his money on prostitutes. And so this was a guy, man, who was living it up. You know, there are folks who think that, um, that people living in sin aren't having fun. Well, i got news for you. There's a lot of people living in sin who are having a lot of fun. They're having a whole lot of fun. Because the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. There absolutely is. But what a burden it must have been for this man's father to hear this news come all the way back to the hometown about how he is wasting everything that this man had worked hard for. I think about our culture today. We live in a culture today that rejoices in sin. We're no longer ashamed of sinful lifestyles. We, we, we are proud of these. We've flown our rebellion. We've left the Father and we're glad we did. And how that must break the heart of God. How it must break the heart of God for God to look down here and to see all that He's given us only to see so many people going into the far country and wasting everything God's given them and living a life of sin. In the same way that it breaks the heart of a parent when they see their child go out and do these ungodly things, it breaks the heart of God. But in the midst of all this, thank God, there is a remembering we see that in verses 14 through 19. Now, I want you to notice this young man's descent. I want you to notice the, the progression here. The Scripture says he spent all he had. I don't know how long it took him to do that, but none of it was stolen from him. He wasn't feeling, chari feeling charitable. He didn't give it away. It says he spent it all. He spent every bit of it. You know, he, he's too greedy for charity probably. Which, by the way, makes the grace that he's going to receive at the end of this story even more amazing because all that his dad had worked for and all that had been given to him for absolute free, he gives none of that away. He doesn't use any of it for the glory of the Lord. He just uses it to get drunk. He uses it to get high. And he uses it to run around and do promiscuous and ungodly things. It's what the text says. And then it says, There arose a severe famine in the land. The land of plenty, 
became a land of poverty. The land of plenty became a land of of poverty. Now I would imagine that he thought the place he was moving to was going to be so much better than the place he was leaving. He didn't want to be anywhere around his family. He didn't want to be anywhere around his dad, especially. Didn't want to be there. He said, I'm going to go over here and life is just going to be absolutely wonderful. But there arose a famine in that land. And then it says he began to be in need. By the way, this was probably the first time this young man had ever been in need in his life. Never, ever, ever had he missed a meal. Never, ever, ever had he wondered where he would sleep at night. Never had this man been in need. But now all of a sudden, he's in want. And it says that he had to get a job. And it says he took a job in that country. Verse 15, that he he joined himself to a citizen of that country, which was a Gentile country. Uh, In essence, what he was doing is he was saying, I guess I'm just going to settle down here. I'm going to live here. This is going to be my home. For all intents and purposes, this Jewish man said, I'm just going to be a Gentile now. And notice he didn't just take any job. Says he became a pig farmer. Which is important because it represents total separation from the Jewish community. Absolute separation. Peter talked about that in Acts 10 where he said, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And so, but but to the Jewish person, you settle down with the Gentiles, you get a job as a pig farmer where you just became a Gentile. And think about it like this. Not only, was he, not only was he joining himself to the Gentiles, but he was joining himself to the reproduction of the most unclean animal that a Jewish person could think of. Jewish people did not eat pigs. They did not eat pork. But not only is this guy going to eat pork, this guy's going to, to reproduce it. He's going to work on a pig farm. He's decided to cut himself off from all of his heritage, from everything he was, everything he grew up to be. But then he begins to look at this situation in verse 16 and he begins to be disgusted. Here's the thing. He wasn't even making enough money at that job to feed himself. He wasn't even making enough money at that job to feed himself. And that's why he begins to want to eat the uh, pods that they're feeding the pigs. Something that tasted disgusting, something that was terrible, but but he was looking at this food that, that no one ate but pigs, and he was thinking, well, maybe I can eat some of that. And the only reason he didn't do that was because it was so disgusting. And then he made a decision as all this was going through his mind in verses 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He made a decision to go home. What does it mean when it says he came to himself? Well, that implies that he repented. That he said, you know, this is wrong. The way I'm living my life now doesn't make any sense at all. He realized how awful his sin was and he decided to go home. And this is so interesting to me. He's so nervous that he rehearses exactly what he's going to say to his father. And maybe a lot of teenagers know that. 
And they, okay, I'm going to go through it. This is what I'm going to tell mom. I'm going to say it. Let me say it out loud a few times and, and hear myself say it and say it to a friend. What do you think about this? And it's so interesting that he does this. He, he says, he, he rehearses this. He says, oh, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he says, I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to say, I've sinned against you and God. I'm not worthy to be your son, and I'm here to apply for a job. By the way, that is exactly what repentance looks like. No excuses. I'm not here to say, oh, Dad, you know, I had some kids talking to me and they convinced me. No, he said, no excuses. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, I have sinned against you and against God. Man, that's the right way to repent, man. To not make any excuses for all the things you did, but just come before God and say, oh, God, I have sinned against man and woman and you. And then there was no pride there. There was no pride. He said, I'm not worthy to be your son. He didn't come back and say, well, you know, I'm so good. And look at all the other good things I've done in my life. He, he didn't do that. He said, I'm not worthy. And then he had no expectations. He didn't say, restore me to the place of a son. He said, I'm just willing to be a servant. And that's what repentance looks like. God, I've sinned against you. I have no excuses. I'm not worthy at all. And I'm just willing, if you'll accept me, to just serve you. With everything that I have. Now you may look at that story this morning. You may say, well, what in the world's that got to do with me? Well, it has a whole lot to do with you. Maybe you have not gone to the far country. But the scripture teaches the far country is in all of us. Because all of us are sinners. You know what the far country is? The far country is the land of gossip, and we've all gossiped. The far country is the land of the liar, and all of us have told a lie. The far country is, is the land of the greedy, and we've all coveted in our hearts. The far country is the land of the adulterer, and we've all lusted. And Jesus said, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. The far country is the land of the murderer. And Jesus said, if you've hated someone, you've killed them in your heart. So man, the, the thing is this, we have all left our Father. We have all squandered our inheritance in the far country. That's what this story has to do with all of us. All of us have no, left what we know was right. And done what we, know, what we knew was wrong. And therefore all of us need to do what this young man did. Now I want you to next see that the looking here in verses 20 and 21. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to notice that his father was looking for him. It says from a long way off. His father saw him coming from a long way off. Not to mention that there was a calf that just happened to be being fattened up, which I believe was there and ready because there was no hesitation whenever he got there. The party started immediately. What does all that show? It shows that this father was waiting for his son to return home. He was longing for his son to, to return home. He, he was ready and, and, and he was looking from a long way off. And there are people who have left God. There are people who have done ungodly things and settled down in a lifestyle. And they may ask this question. They may say, will God receive me? 
And I've got news for you, friend. Not only will God receive you, God's expecting you. And God's looking for you. And so if you ever sit there and wonder, should I stay in the far country? Because what if I make the trip of repentance back to God? Will He receive me? Absolutely He'll receive you. God hasn't forgotten you. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. It doesn't matter how much time has passed at all. So here was a father who was looking for him. And then his father, he, he had compassion on him. Which, by the way, implies that, that the father knew that this young man had been living in sin. He needed compassion. He needed forgiveness. He, he knew this young man had hit rock bottom. And he knew this man had lived a terrible life of sin. Which brings us to another question. Will God receive sinners? Will God receive sinners? And here's the answer to that question. He will only receive sinners. Amen? He will only. It's not will God receive sinners. It's this. He will only receive sinners. If you come to God and you say, I'm not a sinner. No, He won't receive you. He won't receive you at all. The only ones He'll receive y'all are sinners. The only ones He'll receive are, 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 are people like this young man who come to their senses and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but, but just make me a servant. That's the only ones that God is going to receive. And by the way, that's wonderful news because I'm looking at a whole bunch of sinners out there today. Yeah. And you're looking at one up here. There's not a person in this room who isn't a sinner. And so God will receive sinners. He will only receive sinners. And then we see that His Father forgave Him. There was this intimacy that had been disrupted that was now restored. If you look at this, it says that He runs to Him. He embraces Him. He kisses Him. This is not a broken relationship anymore, y'all. This is a relationship that is intimate again. And if you notice here, the well-prepared statement that I was talking about, remember he had rehearsed that, everything he was going to say? That wasn't the reason for the restoration because if you look at verse 21, he tries to tell the father this statement that he's rehearsed, but he doesn't even get to finish it before the father interrupts him. And I love that, man. Because it, this is what you got to remember. It's not your baptism that causes heaven to rejoice. It's not your church membership that causes heaven to rejoice. It's not your service to God that causes heaven to rejoice. It's not your prayers that cause heaven to rejoice. It's your repentance that causes heaven to rejoice. It's your repentance that causes heaven to rejoice. You want to make heaven happy? Repent. That's it, man. That's what this whole chapter, by the way, is about, by the way. Look at verse 7 and then look at verse 10. Look, look at verse 7. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, so I, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see that? The rejoicing is over the repentance. And so he knew that this young man had repented. As he saw him coming back, he knew he had repented. And that's what caused the joy in the father's heart. And the father rejoices because of genuine repentance in his son. And our father in heaven rejoices because of our genuine repentance. Why? Because godly repentance is what leads to salvation. Godly repentance is what leads to salvation. And the father is looking for 
repentant people to rejoice over. Which means that you and I as a church should be as well. You know, the reason that this older brother wasn't looking for his brother to return is because he wasn't longing for his brother to return. He didn't want the scoundrel to come back. He had no desire to see his brother ever again. That's why he misses the whole party and he's late to the party. He doesn't even know what's happening. Why? He doesn't have any desire that his brother ever come home because in his mind, his brother was a Gentile now. In his mind, his brother was cut off. A Gentile, their language was unintelligible, their culture was ungodly, their food was unclean, and that's what his brother was to him now. You see, this parable isn't just about a son who leaves the father. It's also about a son who who hates the lost, who's as miserable as the prodigal. When you look at verse 30, but when this son of yours came, he's speaking, he said, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he's upset with his dad. Upset with him. Listen, as sons and daughters of God, we should be longing and looking for people to turn from their sins and come to faith in Christ. We should be calling the lost to repentance. We should be looking for them to return. And when they do, we should rejoice. When they do, we should rejoice and we should praise God and give Him glory for what He's done in their life. And then I want you to see that there was a lashing when He, when he returned. We see that in verses 22 through 32. Notice that when He gets back, y'all, there is this great exchange. You can imagine what this guy looked like when he got home. You can imagine what this guy smelled like when he got home. And it's pretty clear because his father wants him in something completely different. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. You imagine what this man looked like just in in his body, just tattered and nasty and stinking. Hands and fingernails, hands disgusting and ugly from, from all of the swine. Feet probably barefoot, by the way, when he's walking there. He has nothing But but he says, put a robe on this man. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. And I do think there's some beautiful symbolism there. Because when you get saved, the Bible says that God gives you a robe of righteousness. What does that mean? That means that the very righteous life of Jesus is wrapped around you. And all of your tatteredness and all of your dirtiness and all of your stench, all of that is covered in what? In the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so if you're worried that you could never make it to heaven because you look at all the things you've done, this is what you've got to understand. Your righteousness isn't going to get you to heaven. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when you come to the Father, when you come to the Father, the first thing He does is gives you the robe of Jesus' righteousness. That ring was probably a symbol of authority because families and people of authority had rings and there would be a signet in it and they would use it and impress it in wax and and you would recognize who it belonged to. So putting a ring on his finger probably symbolized you belong to a family now. You have the same authority that I do. And listen, when you get saved, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know that when you get saved, you are a part of the family of God. That God is now your Father. Uh, the body of Christ, this is your brothers. This is your sisters in the Lord. You, are an or- you were an orphaned child, and now you are a child who belongs to the King of Kings. 
And those shoes that he wore, a lot of times the slaves didn't wear shoes. In fact, that was one of the ways you would know the lower class and the slaves because they didn't have shoes. But he put those shoes on his feet. And that reminds us of this, that when we come to Christ, he, he frees us from the slavery of our sin. Now you and I have the power to live a righteous life. Now you and I have the ability to walk this straight and narrow through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a great exchange when you get saved. When you come to Christ, there's a great exchange. And notice then there was this great celebration. You know, I think about this old prodigal. All he'd been doing was partying. But the problem is he he thought he knew how to party. He thought he knew how to party. But when he got home, what does his dad do? His dad throws him a party. And his dad's going to show him how to really party now. To party in, in a godly way. He's going to show him how to dress. This is how you dress, son. He gives him that robe of righteousness. This is how you walk, son. He gives him those shoes. This is how you eat. He kills that fatted calf. And this is how you dance. This is how you know that these guys weren't Baptists because it says they started dancing. Amen? When you got saved. There wasn't no twerking going on or nothing like that. It was godly dancing. It was in response to the great joy in their heart that this man had come home. Listen, when you get saved, you start celebrating and never stop. Amen? When you get saved, when you truly get saved, I'm telling you, if you're not saved, you don't know what true joy is. If you're not saved, you you have no idea. Most of the joy that I had when I was lost came with it a guilty conscience. Huh? But when you get saved and you're living your life for the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the joy that you experience in life is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing that you have to try to remember. Oh, what did I do last night? But all of a sudden you have a soft, good conscience for a pillow at night. And you could rest like you've never rested before. Now there is a great lesson here for us. Here's the lesson we see in verses 31 and 32. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The first thing is this. The first lesson is this. People are dead in their sins. They are lost. They are without God. People and nations are on their way to a place the Bible calls hell. And the church ought to be burdened about that thing. Listen, if you do not come to Christ, you're going to go to the far country. You're going to try to find joy in this world. You're going to try to find peace in this world. And you're going to find very quickly that this world charges a whole lot more than it's worth. And in the end, you're going to be dead broke. And in the end, you're not going to have the joy that only God can give. In the end, you're not going to have a conscience that's clear. In the end, you're going to realize that, that a grandmother who warned you was right or a father who, who pled with you is right. People are dead in their sins. And if you, if you recognize that early enough, you can miss all that far country mess, can't you? 
You can miss all that pigsty stuff. We need to recognize that. People are dead in their sins. But then, church Christians, we need to be searching for the lost. We skipped a whole lot of this parable. The parable starts in verse 4. And it starts with a lost sheep. And somebody goes looking for that sheep and they find it. And then everybody rejoices. And then in verses 8 through 10, there's a lost coin. There's a woman who's searching high and low for this coin. And then she finds it and everybody rejoices. But in the part that contains the lost son, no one goes searching. No one goes searching. And there's someone who isn't rejoicing. With the sheep, with the coin, someone went searching, someone is rejoicing. Or everyone is rejoicing. In the parable here, this part of the parable, no one goes looking And someone isn't rejoicing. What's the point? Why is it different? Well, it's because Jesus' point is the religious leaders would probably look for a lost sheep. Yeah, we'll go out and find a sheep. They'd probably look for some lost money. But a fellow like this who left and went out to the Gentiles, they'd probably never go looking for him because they didn't care about lost people. And I think that's a wonderful lesson that the church needs to take, take heed to. And I don't mean fill the church up with lost people because that's not the point. The point is we're to be rejoicing over sinners who repent over their sins. We're to go out into the world and call people to repentance through the gospel just as God called us. You see, the joy, it it fills the Father's heart. It fills the Father's heart when we reach our lost neighbors and nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this morning, if you're like this prodigal here in this story, you you knew what was right. You've known what was right for a long time. You have people in your life who love you. You have people in your life who care for you. But it doesn't matter. You've gone your own way. You're doing your own thing. If that's you this morning, I want to call you back to the Father. I want to call you home to salvation. Take a look at your life, and and before it's wasted, do that. Before it's too shameful, do that. Before it has gone too far in the wrong direction, do that. But not only do I want you to take a look at your life, I want you to take a look at the cross, because at the cross you'll see that God loves you. What did we see here? This was a man who had everything you could ever dream of. He had a father who loved him unconditionally. But he left it. He left it all. And He almost ruined His entire eternity. Christ has done everything for us, church. Christ has done it all. Jesus has has taken our sins upon the cross. He has died. He has risen again. And now He calls out to us, Come unto Me. Be saved. Be forgiven. And our responsibility is to be like this prodigal, to come to Christ saying, Oh, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be forgiven. But if you'll have me, if you'll have me, I'll be your servant. And when you do that, you'll be a servant, but you'll be so much more. You'll be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. Given the authority of a child as a child of the King. And made free. Made free by the power of God from sin and all that entangles you.
Friend, I hope if you haven't been saved, you will be. With every head bowed. Father in heaven, we thank you so much and we love you. And we're grateful for Jesus in our life. And we're grateful for the story in the Bible, the story of the prodigal. 